So let's give ourselves this topic. Three minutes. Write about a job that you really hated. Ten years ago, I was visiting this remedial English class at a community college in Maryland when I met Mario Martinez. He was 19. It was his first college class. The job that I can say I really disliked or hated was in Ferros, Virginia. Oh, I didn't put it what it was. Uh, it's valet parking. I really don't know what I was thinking. I Mario had been kicked out of high school. Grocery store He'd been in jail cars. for a while, then started working a bunch of low-wage jobs. I had no plans of my future at all. I, had, I don't know what I was thinking. I was completely lost. I just knew I was going to grow old. And that's basically it. When Mario started this class, he knew nothing about college. No one in his family had ever been. He was working for a contractor installing wood floors when he figured out college might be a good idea. We would go to a lot of big people's houses, like mansions, and I started asking a lot of them what what they would do, like what was their career. They wouldn't want to tell me what they was working in, but they'll tell me, you know, they got there because of school. So back in 2008, Mario walked into Montgomery College in Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C., and signed up for classes. He made a bet that most young people make these days. He bet that going to college would lead to a better life. There is all kinds of evidence that it does. For example, people with bachelor's degrees earn 84% more over a lifetime than people with just high school diplomas. It's more if you go to graduate school. And if you don't get a degree, you're about twice as likely to be unemployed and more than three times as likely to live in poverty. And it's not all about money. People with college degrees tend to be healthier, they're more likely to vote and to volunteer, and their kids are more likely to go to college. But here's the thing. Not everyone who goes to college gets all these benefits. College does more for some people than others. And when we're talking specifically about how much money people make, and in particular about how likely it is that a college degree will help someone like Mario Martinez move from poverty into the middle class or beyond, where you go to college can make a big difference. From APM Reports, this is the Educate Podcast, a collaboration with the Heckinger Report. I'm Emily Hanford, in for Stephen Smith. As you may know, we release a series of documentaries every year in the fall. And one of the documentaries we're working on now is about college and social mobility. Today, and on the next episode of the podcast, too, we're going to share some of what we're learning. Next time, we'll tell you about what happened to Mario Martinez, whether the bet he made on college is working out for him 10 years later. On this episode, we're going to talk about which colleges in America are doing the most to help people from poor families move up the income ladder. Here's the guy we're going to talk to. I'm John Friedman. I'm a professor at Brown University. He's an economist, and with two other economists at Stanford and Harvard, he runs something called the Equality of Opportunity Project. Where we use big data to understand intergenerational mobility in America. Intergenerational mobility has to do with whether people can move up from the social class they're born in. America has a problem when it comes to intergenerational mobility. Look at the probability that a child grows up to earn more than his or her parents earned. The United States was once doing really well by this measure. For kids born in the 1940s, they were almost guaranteed to achieve this level of success. About 90% of them grew up to earn more than their parents did. It's a happy-go-spending world. 
reflected in the windows of the suburban shopping centers where they go to buy. After World War II, the economy boomed. And because of the GI Bill, the number of people going to college went way up too. But in fact, you didn't need a college degree to make a good living. This kind of amazed me. According to John Friedman, the difference in earnings between those who went to college and those who didn't was actually shrinking in the first few decades after World War II. There were plenty of good jobs for people who didn't have college degrees. That started to change about the time John Friedman was born. By the time you get to when I was born in 1980, it's just a coin flip. Only 50% of kids earn more than their parents do. So what happened? Well, part of it's that the economy was unusually good for a while there after World War II. But what's really the story is that the growth that we've seen in the last 30 years has been less evenly distributed across the country. It's accruing more and more to uh, richer and richer households in fewer and fewer places. And I think that's led to a real feeling for many across America that the American dream is slipping away from them. John Friedman and his colleagues started the Equality of Opportunity Project to try to figure out what's up with the American dream and how it might be revived. When it comes to higher education, there's this kind of double-edged sword at work. On the one hand, the way higher education in America works today, it's actually worsening our economic divide. Affluent kids are much more likely to go to college, to go to the most elite colleges, and to complete their degrees. So college perpetuates the wealth gap. But if you're a kid from a low-income family and you want to move up the income ladder, the best thing you can do, the action you can take that's more likely than anything else to improve your economic circumstances, is to get some kind of higher education. Given all that, what John Friedman and his colleagues wanted to know is which colleges in America are doing the most to promote upward mobility, and how much, and for whom. And because they're big data guys, they decided to figure it out. So a little over a year ago, you came out with this paper on mobility report cards, where you were digging into what different colleges do in terms of the role that they play in social mobility. To do that, what did you do? Right. So we start with de-identified data from the federal government covering all college students from 1999 to 2013. That's about 24 million people. And what we do with those students is we look to see what their circumstances were before enrolling in college, uh, where they were living and uh, how much their parents were earning. And then we track them through to what happens after they leave college, whether they graduate or not, uh, and they enter the labor force, measuring their earnings either individually or in their household in their mid-30s. Then they calculated a mobility rate for every college in America. They define the mobility rate as the percentage of students who come from the lowest income families, the bottom 20% of the income distribution, and make it to the top, the richest 20%. Now, this is obviously a very stark contrast, going from the poorest to the wealthiest. That means going from a family income of less than $20,000 a year to a family income of at least $110,000 a year. We wouldn't expect college to do that for everyone, and not everyone's goal is to make it to the top 20%. But Friedman and his colleagues wanted to see which colleges are producing the most bottom-to-top success stories, and are there any patterns there? Here's what they found. 
Perhaps no surprise, the nation's most elite colleges have the highest success rates. In other words, if you want to find schools that are turning the largest fraction of their poor kids into affluent adults, look at the Ivy League. So, I mean, just to give you an example, here at Brown University, we have about 3 to 4% of students, depending on the exact year, who come from this poorest fifth of households. Among those students, about uh, 50% end up at the top of the income distribution after they leave school. Okay, so wow, on two levels. First, if you're a student from a poor family and you end up at Brown, you have a 50% chance of becoming a top earner. Those are really good odds. But only 3 to 4% of students at Brown come from the poorest fifth of families. That's nothing. And this is true across the nation's most selective private colleges. There are almost no poor kids on campus. A student from the richest 1% of families is 77 times more likely to attend one of these schools than a student from a family in the poorest quintile. And that means the mobility rate at Brown and other top colleges is dismal. Because the mobility rate, not to get too wonky on you here, is the fraction of all students at a college who are bottom-to-top success stories. And if you have almost no poor kids to begin with, you can't possibly be doing much to promote social mobility. Now, here's something you might be thinking. It's really hard to get into an Ivy League school. You have to be super well-prepared academically. And because there is so much inequality in our K-12 education system in America, lots of kids from poor families don't end up as well-prepared. So maybe Brown doesn't have a lot of kids from poor families because those students wouldn't do well there. They're not ready. This came up in arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court in 2015 in an affirmative action case called Fisher versus Texas. It wasn't a case about low-income students. It was about African-American students. Justice Antonin Scalia repeated a frequent conservative argument that students with lesser academic qualifications don't benefit from being admitted to highly selective colleges like the University of Texas at Austin. There are those who contend that it does not benefit African-Americans to, to get them into the University of Texas where they do not do well, uh, as opposed to having them go to a less uh, advanced school, a, less, a, a slower track school, where they do well. The Equality of Opportunity Project shows Scalia was wrong, at least when it comes to how much money people go on to make. If you compare students from similar income families with similar test scores who end up at UT Austin, African-American students actually outperform white students. In other words, black students at UT go on to make more money than similar white students. And if you compare students from the lowest income families to students from the highest at elite colleges across the country, you see that both groups go on to make about the same amount of money. So what we find in the data... Here's John Friedman. ...is that the students from poorer backgrounds who attend elite schools do essentially as well as students that attend those same schools from much, much richer backgrounds. That is despite the very strong dependency in this country of kids' outcomes to parents' incomes in general... That almost entirely disappears once you look at students at an individual college. And so in that sense, higher education is leveling the playing field in that, say, once you are admitted as a student to Brown University, where I am here, you have an equal shot 
uh, at success. But here's the thing. It's not at all an even playing field when it comes to who goes to America's elite colleges. In fact, it's not an even playing field when it comes to who goes to college at all. While it's true that more poor students are going to college than ever before, there are huge gaps. According to a report from the College Board, more than 80% of high school graduates from the highest income families enroll immediately in college. That's compared to just 58% from the lowest income families. And where do those low-income students go? They're much more likely to end up at a regional public university or a for-profit school or a community college. So, how do those schools do when it comes to promoting social mobility? Some of them are doing a really great job. Like, this wasn't here when I was here. We used to walk this way to go to Jacob Jarvis for um, regular classroom, so lecture hall. We're on the campus of Stony Brook University with Derek Peterson, who's admiring all the new buildings that have gone up since he graduated from here in 1988. Stony Brook is a public university on Long Island in New York, and it's one of the best colleges in America when it comes to promoting social mobility. Back then, the goal was just very simple. Can I go to school and get a job? My parents didn't... We weren't necessarily destitute, but we didn't have a lot. And so how do I get out and be and do something on my own and then make my parents and my community proud of what I've done? Derek Peterson was admitted to Stony Brook as part of a special program for low-income students who show potential but aren't fully prepared for college. I'll just be honest, there was a lot of people that said, you're not going to be able to do it. The school is really tough. But with a lot of support, he did do it. Derek Peterson graduated with a degree in computer science and applied mathematics. Now, he's a wealthy tech entrepreneur. He's setting up a scholarship to honor his father, who never finished college. Stony Brook produces a remarkable number of bottom-to-top success stories. So, just to give you some numbers... Here's John Friedman again. Among poor students who attend Stony Brook, half of them go on to make it into the top of the income distribution. We're talking Ivy League success rates here, but for a lot more students. Where Stony Brook really stands out is that uh, relative to Ivy League schools that have 4% of their student body coming from the poorest families, at Stony Brook, uh, in our primary data, that main number is 16%. So there are four times as many children from poor families um, as a fraction of the Stony Brook student body as an Ivy League school, despite the fact that the outcomes of these kids are uh, really quite similar. Turns out Stony Brook is the third best college in America when it comes to promoting social mobility. The top two are Cal State LA and Pace University in New York. John Friedman refers to these schools as America's engines of mobility. These are not fancy schools. So if you look at the schools with the very highest mobility rates, there are primarily schools that are in the middle of the American public higher education system. And what exactly are these schools doing? John Friedman's not quite sure. I like to say that colleges with a, with a very high mobility rate, they must be doing something right. They are either providing a great education and a great kind of boost to students that are on campus, or they're doing a great job finding talented uh, low-income students in the first place. He thinks it's probably both. You can't be a mobility maker unless you have a lot of low-income students to begin with. But there are plenty of colleges in America that are attracting lots of low-income students and not moving them up the income ladder. 
In fact, there are schools that leave some students worse off, schools that do little or nothing to promote mobility and saddle students with debt. For-profit schools dominate the top of that list. So how about community colleges? They also attract a lot of low-income students. So there is just an enormous variation in the mobility rates of community colleges. It's very, very difficult to make broad comparisons because schools are so likely to serve students that uh, grow up right around them. I wanted to know about Montgomery College in Maryland, where Mario Martinez started 10 years ago. How likely is it that a student from a poor family will make it, let's say all the way up into the top 20 percent? John Friedman and his colleagues found that 23% of poor students who go to Montgomery College end up in that top income bracket. That's pretty impressive for a community college. That puts it at the 98th percentile of community colleges nationwide. So uh, relative to all other community colleges, Montgomery puts more of its poor kids into the top of the income distribution than almost any other. Is there anything in the data that you can see that tells you anything about why that is? So again, it's, I think, very difficult to, uh, to get inside what's going on. Um, being close to D.C., where you know, it's a growing economic city, uh, where wages are higher than in other places in the country, um, no doubt has uh, some part of that. And then he brings up this other thing. Uh, in some more recent work, we've been able to look not just at mobility rates from colleges, but mobility rates from neighborhoods. And it seems like uh, the neighborhoods around uh, Washington, D.C. are some of the top neighborhoods in the U.S. for uh, poor children to grow up, especially poor children from minority families. In other words, there is something about the neighborhoods surrounding Montgomery College that seems to be helping low-income kids from minority families move up the income ladder. But most neighborhoods in the United States are not good places for poor minority kids to grow up, especially black boys. The recent work that John Friedman just mentioned shows that even when kids grow up in the same neighborhoods with parents who earn the same amount of money and have the same level of education, black boys go on to earn less than white boys. Black boys have much lower rates of upward mobility than whites, and they have much higher rates of downward mobility. The Equality of Opportunity Project paints a better picture for Hispanic children. On average, Hispanics in the United States are making steady progress up the income distribution across generations. And so what about Mario Martinez? A decade ago, he made that bet that college would lead to a better life. How did it work out for him? We'll find out in two weeks on the next episode of the podcast. We would love to hear from you. Tell us how you found this podcast and why you listen. You can get in touch with us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is at Educate Podcast, one word. You can also send us an email to contact at apmreports.org. And maybe best of all, you could write a review on iTunes. It helps other people find our work. The documentary we're working on about college and social mobility, it'll be coming out in August. To help us in reporting that documentary, you can tell us your story. Did college change your social class? And what is social class? Is it about how much money you make or is it something else? You can tell us what you think by filling out a brief questionnaire at apmreports.org slash documentaries. 
The Educate Podcast is produced by Alex Baumhart and Chris Julin. Catherine Winter is our editor. Thanks to Sasha Aslanian for help with this episode. We'll hear again next month from our partners at the Heckinger Report. In the meantime, check out their Divided We Learn series. Reporter Matt Krupnik has a great story about how millions of adults who want to go to college live in higher education deserts with no place to go. There are 3 million adults in the U.S. who are in that situation where they live far from a university campus and they lack the internet speed to take online courses, which obviously puts them at a disadvantage educationally. You can find Matt's story on the Heckinger Report website, heckingerreport.org. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Emily Hanford. Thanks for listening. This is APM.